Welcome everybody, my name is Mikhail Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians, episode one, about this podcast. The name of this podcast might be self-explanatory to many, but I want to clarify a few things at the very beginning. This is a podcast about Islam for Christians. This is an attempt to convert Christians to Islam, and just so there are no misunderstandings, I am not a Muslim, I am a Christian who respects Islam. This is merely a resource for Christians to learn about Islam. If you're a Muslim, you're more than welcome to uh, to listen in. I have absolutely no problem with that. In fact, I actually welcome this. Our two faiths represent roughly half the world's population, so it's only natural one member of a mega religion would be interested about what draws so many people to the other mega religion. So who am I, and why have I created this podcast? About me. I'll keep this part to a minimum particularly because I prefer to keep a low profile uh, in almost every aspect of my life, but also because you're not here to learn about me. You're here to learn about Islam and its relationship to Christianity. I am a seminary graduate, and I do have some academic credentials related to Islam, interfaith theology and world religions, things like that. But much of my knowledge also comes from a lifetime of curiosity regarding all things eternal. Islam, like Christianity, cuts through the temporal and tries to go directly to the source of all that is. In a word, God. Like many of you, my interests tend to branch out in these natural ways. For instance, I grew up loving baseball. So later on, it was only natural to be curious about cricket. They're both bat and ball sports. They're both obsessed with statistics. Seems like something I would like. And it was true. But while learning cricket, I also learned that almost everyone seems to hate one but love the other. And I never understood that way of thinking. Baseball's a fantastic game. Cricket is infinitely entertaining as well. Do they really need to be in competition? Isn't my life richer that I can enjoy both? And similarly, a spiritually inclined Christian would naturally be interested in Islam. It's cricket to Christianity's baseball. Or maybe the reverse, considering Christianity came before Islam. Islam and Christianity have common roots, but their cultural similarities are what makes them mega-religions. They are unapologetically evangelical, and that evangelism has not always been peaceful, but they come from a Christian scripture, although both use the Jewish tradition in very different ways. Both are universal and without an ethnic base. Only 15% of Muslims, for example, are Arabs, and that number seems to be perpetually shrinking. Similarly, there really is no Christian ethnicity. You think about what a Christian looks like. I have no idea. Both have an outsized emphasis on the afterlife compared to Judaism and many other religions. So if Muslims and Christians can't appreciate each other, what hope is there for any other religions? Like many, I showed a real interest in Islam in the aftermath of 9-11. This is a bit sad and disheartening, true, but it's the truth. Uh, most people saw a menace and were afraid of all things Muslim. I'll admit I wasn't immune to this. I was terrified the first time I was actually inside a mosque. But it's only afterward that you have to laugh at your own inner thoughts. It's like, really? You actually thought some nut was going to interrupt Friday prayers with a bomb? If you're experiencing similar feelings, and I'm completely non-judgmental about this kind of thing, it can actually help to express your fears out loud. Actually say what you're afraid of, and hearing it out loud may embarrass you. It's an old stoic technique, and it can work wonders on those of us who are a bit more neurotic than the average person. It wasn't the terrorist crazies that drew me to the religion, though. Instead, I saw it as a sort of counterculture that the modern world desperately needed. 
Muslims I knew were focused on the eternal, and they put God first, whereas I lived in a society that had put God in the trunk like a spare tire. God was first for them, unapologetically. They walked the walk and talked the talk. It was very impressive. Their religion was full of little reminders, the five daily prayers, dietary restrictions, etc., that reminded them of who was supposed to be number one. They were putting the cart behind the horse, whereas I saw so many churches putting the cart, i.e. politics or money or otherworldly priorities, ahead of God. The Muslims thought differently, though. They were the cultural equivalent of punk rock in a materialist society. Um, here's an example of what I mean. This is an old story about a basketball player named Ibrahim Jabber, which illustrates the countercultural thinking I'm talking about. Credit to the long-defunct sports website Grantland for this one, and I know this kind of dates me. I believe the article's from 2005, which as of now is 16 years ago. But here it is. Quote, it was here on a cold January day that the point guard for Zalgiris, Ibi Jabber, arranged to voluntarily return every penny he'd earned from the team. He remembers stop stepping off the busy street and into the bank. Jobber, six foot to 180 pounds and a month shy of his 29th birthday, looked his usual self, skinny and angular, but he says something had changed inside of him. A lightning fast guard from Elizabeth, New Jersey, he had played for the University of Pennsylvania from 2003 to 2007, where Jobber used his long arms and quick hands to set the Ivy League record for career steals. He also took home three Ivy League championships, twice being named the league's player of the year. Since graduating, he'd built a lucrative career playing for top teams in Europe. He's got 12 siblings and a success that helped support the jobbers back home. His one-year deal with Zalgiris was worth more than $500,000, but the money was no good to him anymore. The team's jerseys featured the logo of a beer company called Calnapilis, a small red triangle with the brewery's name in script below it. As a devout Muslim, the beer ad offended jobber. So did the squad's scantily clad cheerleaders with their low-cut tops and barely their bottoms. The cheerleaders' racy routines weren't so different from anything you'd seen in an NBA arena. Um, but as Jobber put it, to me, they're naked women. He even put the music pumped through the arena to be too profane. He'd been with the team for more than three months, and things were going smoothly. But then it hit him one day like a basketball to the head. To keep his faith, he had to go. It was really like an epiphany, Jobber says. He told the team that he would be leaving immediately and that, since the money he'd earned from them was tainted, he didn't want it anymore. So there he was at the bank, meeting a Zalgiris official. I laughed with the team manager about the situation, Jobber says. How can somebody do this? Everybody lives for money. The bank teller confirmed the transfer. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were wired from Jobber's account to the team's. He walked out of the bank and prepared to leave Countess with his wife and newborn son. I understand that maybe I will never earn money from basketball because of this decision, he said at the time, but I am ready to do such a sacrifice for my beliefs. Then one day in January, Jobber took stock. On the front of his jersey, there was the beer ad. On the sidelines, the cheerleaders. Over the loudspeakers, the music. If thing those things were going to exist in the world, he didn't want to be the one promoting them. Jobber isn't sure why his epiphany hit him exactly when it did. It might have been something to do with being a new dad. I knew first off I didn't want my son to be there, Jobber says. 
I didn't want him to be hearing the foul music or seeing the half-naked women between timeouts. I didn't want him to see the alcohol advertisements. It also might have just been the result of his, as he put it, exponentially growing spirituality. In any case, the dam had burst. He talked it over with his wife, called his parents back home, and that was it. It all happened quickly. I was putting myself in a dangerous position, he says. Playing for Zalgiris, he explains, was detrimental to my afterlife. That's not something I would want to die upon. Who's to say that I won't die tomorrow night in practice, and that will be what I die upon? So I can't go back. I couldn't even give two weeks' notice. End quote. Is that not an amazing story for the 21st century? I seriously doubt I would have done it, but I admire people who walk the walk this way. It's what I meant when I referenced punk rock earlier. He's not just dyeing his hair and wearing a mohawk. He's smashing a half-million-dollar guitar because, to him... It's not worth what it's worth to the mainstream. It's a giant middle finger to all the things we're supposed to hold so dear, in particular wealth and fame. He had a priceless instrument in his hands, played a few chords, and smashed it against a speaker. It's the sex pistols calling the queen a fascist. I love that. Islam is, at minimum, a thought-provoking voice against the elements of modern culture that have become so ubiquitous that we don't even think about them anymore. God in the back seat are rejected completely substance dependence, trivialization of a potential afterlife, postmodernism run amok, sex positivity, and the primacy of mere material comfort. In America, in particular, the Muslim perspective has added weight because of the religion's light footprints in the Western Hemisphere. It's a fresh perspective over here that doesn't have nearly as much overlap with the popular culture. It's hard to express the depth of the riches of this 1,400-year-old tradition, I ate up every story I could find on Muhammad and his family, particularly his cousin and son-in-law Ali, and his grandson Hussein. His wife's had some amazing stories, particularly his first wife Khadijah, and later Aisha, who oversaw generations of palace intrigue after Muhammad's death. Her testimony provided many of the traditions on which Islamic law is based. His friends were pretty extraordinary too, from the first caliph Abu Bakr to Umar, Islam's version of Peter the Great, there was Bilal, a free slave, that literally became the voice of Islam. Abu Talib, the non-believer who nonetheless gave his all to protect Islam. Islam's early enemies would actually go on to form great Islamic dynasties, eventually giving way to an intellectual golden age in the Middle East while the Dark Ages engulfed the West. This era gave birth to intellectual giants like Al-Ghazali, and the greatest of them all, in my opinion, the eccentric mystic and Christian-style martyr Al-Khalaj. The Muslim empire stretched from Spain to India. It converted the invading Mongols and turned Khan into a Muslim last name. Merchants later stretched Islamic influence as far east as the world knew, spreading as far as what is now Indonesia. Muslim influence would later wane at an inopportune time. Christianity was ascendant everywhere, just as the age of exploration and European dominance dawned. As the Reformation began, the Turks were at the gates of Vienna, but that was the beginning of the end. The Ottomans carried the Muslim torch all the way into World War I, which finally gave the empire a much-deserved mercy killing. Christians would draw the maps in the Muslim heartland starting in the 20th century, the repercussions of which are still wobbling around the Middle East today. Just from a standpoint of history, it's impossible to understand the modern world without Islam. And it's particularly important to Christians, given 1,400 years of tumultuous overlap, 
There is so much there, and one doesn't need to be a Muslim to appreciate it. While not a practicing Muslim, I have incorporated some elements of it into my own life. The Muslim focus on idolatry has been particularly helpful in the broadest sense. Human beings are not meant to be worshipped. Drilling that fundamental into your head is a terrific vaccine against celebrity culture, and it also puts romantic relationships into the proper context. Although I admit, my wife really, really hates that. And it applies to everything else in the creation. The most comforting phrase I've ever heard comes from Islam. La ilaha illallah. This means there is no God but God. Meditating on the consequences of this truth simplifies everything and gives great comfort. This is the truth of the world boiled down to a short sentence, the most essential and raw expression of reality I've ever encountered. This is my baseline for eternity. Like when Mr. Miyagi tells the karate kid that when life seems out of focus, it's best to return to the most basic part of life. He meant breathing, but he wasn't going far enough. La ilaha illallah is more basic and more primal than even breathing. The Arabic cadence even has an auditory quality that is believed to have power in and of itself. I witnessed this hypnotic chant with some Turkish Sufis a long time ago, and they went on for at least 10 minutes saying only those words. It made such an impression I used it, with great success, to call my infant daughter in stressful situations. And I've used it on myself as well. When I feel down, I love to read the thunderous early surahs of Muhammad's early visions. The Quran can get quite technical and boring as the years go on, and Muhammad deals with the tedium of being head of state. But the early visions are stunning, poetic, and powerful. Those early revelations are Isaiah-like, whereas the other ones, well, not so much. While important, they just don't have the same artistic quality of the early ones, at least in my opinion although I would assume many Muslims would disagree. Just to be clear, there are a few things this podcast will not be. This will not be an anti-Muslim podcast. I have no interest in tearing down Islam. Well, I think interreligious polemics can be entertaining and necessary at times. It's just not something I choose to focus on. That said, this will not be a politically correct defense of all things Islam either. This is a Christian view of Islam after all, so don't expect this to be an attempt at whitewashing history or pretending that Islam, as constructed, is above criticism. Islam is people, and we all know what Christians think of human nature. Related to the first two points, I'm not interested in making any high-minded political or theological statements. There will be no sermons. You're welcome to draw any conclusions you like, and I really mean that. This podcast is about expanding knowledge rather than advancing an agenda. My main purposes are to share and to inform. I'm a podcast enthusiast myself. I subscribe to three dozen educational podcasts, and I'm completely in love with this format. With this podcast, I hope to be another voice out there for those craving knowledge. I hope you like it. I hope it's helpful, educational, and, God willing, entertaining. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.
Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.